I was really um, happy last night when Joseph ended his talk by just reminding us all that the purpose of our practice is freedom of heart, of mind. Really, the purpose of our practice is awakening in each moment. Sometimes I think it's possible for each of us at different times to become a bit myopic in the way that we practice, I mean, a bit narrowly focused. Um, so, for example, and, and some of it has to do with the way that we have been talking about mindfulness and the different factors of enlightenment. So by really narrow-sighted or close-looking, I mean, we can get into thinking in the moment that our practice is about just getting clearer and more precise uh, noticing of everything. You know, we can really work ourselves into quite a, a snit, you know, trying to get each sensation a little clearer, or our noting a little more precise. And um, sometimes, I know for myself, I can, at the end of a retreat or in the middle of a retreat, somehow it seems like the whole reason for my practice has become to be a really good meditator. And I kind of lose sight that there's actually a larger purpose than just being the best possible yogi going, you know. Um, and sometimes people have said uh, to me in the past that they feel actually that their mindfulness is quite good, but somehow they're feeling more disconnected from others or from the situation, somehow very mindful, but also rather separate. Um, and that's in like the moment-to-moment -moment picture and in the bigger picture that somehow we've learned how to be very mindful but we feel so rarefied, so sensitive, how can we possibly not only carry this into life but how can we live a life in this world? And somehow the, the more we practice, the, the more we think we're going to, are we practicing to avoid life? You know, is that what it's about? Obviously, I'm not going to say that's what it's about. I think it's just the reverse. This is a, from a, a Sufi. That the true man or woman of God, now substitute for God, are Buddhist lingo. You know, you can substitute dharma or truth or awareness, okay? So it's just a word. <laughs> Hope I covered myself. The true man or woman of God sits in the middle of her fellow men or women and rises and eats and sleeps and marries and buys and sells, gives and takes in the bazaar and spends her days with other people and yet never forgets the truth even for a single moment. To me, that, that really inspires me. To me, that's sort of, in a way, the way I think of practicing. To be able to live fully in the midst of the world, without aversion, without avoidance, and yet to stay connected with truth 
never forgetting it for a single moment. So tonight, in speaking, I want to highlight an aspect of mindfulness that we've mentioned but not talked about a whole lot that I think helps uh, in broadening our perspective in bringing us out of this sometimes sense of being a little too rarefied, a little too separate. And it's this quality that's called in Pali, Sampajanya, translated in English as clear comprehension. And often when right mindfulness is spoken of, it actually means the combination, it's called Sati Sampajanya, mindfulness and clear comprehension. So we've often been speaking of mindfulness, sati, as this quality of very clear connection, knowing what's happening, very precise, and of course, you know, non-coercive, non-judging. And as we practice in this way, uh, our mindfulness can get quite microscopic. Uh, and it gets sort of mixed with all the other uh, enlightenment factors, with the kind of starry glitz of concentration sometimes, and with the real calmness of tranquility and equanimity, with the energizing factors. And all of those are together. But I find often we can kind of think if we don't have all that intensity or the kind of starry, you know, ness or the microscopic quality, we feel as though at times we've lost or abandoned mindfulness. But what clear comprehension does is bring it into a wider focus because actually we can get so precisely microscopic and be quite out of balance. I mean, it's fine when we're just sitting on the cushion. It's absolutely appropriate. But when we move out of uh, the isolation and are engaged in any activity where we need to interact with others or make choices or decisions or even, God forbid, speak, then we move out of this kind of secluded microscopic quality of mindfulness and need to bring in the aspects of clear comprehension. And these, of course, in the classic Theravada way, they break it down to talk about it as four different areas. But um, the two, two uh, main areas are uh, awareness or clear comprehension of our intention or purpose and of the appropriateness or wider suitability of an action, of what we're doing, of looking at what we're doing in the context of the bigger picture. I mean, this seems obvious, but sometimes we have to bring it in consciously. I think a good example, a good place to look at this might be, well, depending what your yogi job is, but in your yogi job meditation, uh, it was brought home to me quite clearly. A few years ago, I took the job of vegetable chopper, which is a really great job. It can be lots of fun. And it requires a lot of interaction, a lot of cooperation. And I could really see the difference between 
when I was trying to hold on to mindfulness in the very precise, focused way, kind of a samadhi concentration mindfulness, just chopping the carrot, feeling every sensation of movement of the hand and chopping the carrot, and you know, 10 minutes and you've chopped one carrot. And meanwhile, everyone else has to work like mad because you're going so slow, you're not getting the work done, you know. And there's something lacking in this, not really taking in the whole picture. And it can feel that to let go of that and open up, okay, so we can tend to almost, uh, at least I could tend to, as if be holding on tightly to my idea of mindfulness concentration, but in effect, not being appropriate in the situation. To bring in clear comprehension means to broaden my sense of purpose in the small purpose to be as mindful as possible, to get good meditation, let go of the small purpose and open to the larger one of we're all here together as a group to do this job, to cut up the vegetables in order to help the cooks to serve all the yogis lunch. It's actually quite a lovely purpose. And to let go of my sense of I'm just one separate person and see that I'm part of a continual flow and change. That the, and that the situation is always changing. So that when it can let go of the intensity, the inward focus, and really begin to move and shift with the flow of things, where you can see if someone else has a lot to do and I'm finished, you don't just walk out and say, good, I'm done. You help the other person, because it's not just my job or your job, it's our job. And to see that what works one day, the next day the situation might be totally different or I come in with a particular preference, I'll do anything, but I don't want to have to peel the beets, and be able to let go of that, you know? If I get there and the, I'm handed the beets, can we just let go and peel the beets, and actually enjoy peeling the beets as part of the larger purpose of what's happening? And it went from a, a feeling of trying to hold on tightly to some form of meditation to get somewhere, to a real uh, open, flowing sense of connectedness. And what I found in that ease is that true mindfulness and concentration actually developed much more naturally without this sort of artificial separation, without this forcing to be microscopic. And that what I thought was letting go of mindfulness to open up to the big picture to the whole shifting situation was actually a deepening into the broader qualities of mindfulness. And this is really, to me, it's the broad qualities that our practice is about, not to just get stuck in trying to be microscopic. So on a retreat level, so to speak, that's an example of the difference between uh, Sati just on its own, just the microscopic precision, and sati combined with clear comprehension of purpose and appropriateness or suitability, matching our actions and decisions to what's actually happening in the bigger picture. 
So I want to talk a little more about each of these areas. This first area, clear comprehension of purpose, of course, on the moment-to-moment level, it's what we've talked about often, knowing our intention before we take an action, before we say something. I mean, this is obvious. And when we're in tune with, able to notice our intention, as many of you have noticed through practice, that moment of noticing intention gives us a moment of choice. You know, do I really want to do this? Is this really going to be beneficial action, beneficial for myself, beneficial for others? And it's wonderful to have that moment to reflect. On a larger, more overarching uh, level of our experience, this clear comprehension of purpose can refer also not just to the the momentary intention as it arises prior to each action, but referring when we think, is this beneficial or not, referring that to a larger, uh, as it were, overarching sense of what is really my truest, my deepest purpose in this life, in my life. And I have personally found that consciously tuning into this, what is my deepest purpose? Being willing to um, clarify that for oneself, it becomes a very powerful and inspiring beacon, as it were, in our life. That Um, without a sense of what is really my deepest purpose, then I can take decisions sort of haphazardly, as it were, well, this feels good, or I don't know, this kind of has the right feel, or maybe this would be good. But we're just sort of acting at random. And our energy can get a bit dispersed. There's so many possibilities that we are confronted with especially in our culture. You know, where to work, where to live, should I move, should I switch jobs, should I switch relationships? I mean, it's just endless in our culture. And to have a deep sense, sort of a a guideline, of what is really most deeply true for me in my life, I have found uh, really inspiring very profound. It um, can be a powerful cause for transformation in our life and how we live our life. And it's interesting because I found in myself and also in speaking with other people, actually here often, people, it might come up in an interview where someone has had a very profound and uh, touching uh, moment or inner sense of something that's deeply true for them, which I would call getting in touch with their their truest purpose, their deepest purpose. And it's, people tend to be almost uh, embarrassed, very shy to say so. And what I've often found, I found it in myself, when I hear it in others, I feel really sad, 
is there's often a sense of who am I to dare to have a really profound or a, a really uh, deep a purpose deeply connected to truth or to serving beings or to whatever it happens to be for you. I'm not saying there's a right purpose. But, for example, when it first came up for me consciously, quite some time ago, I was on a short self-retreat, and out of nowhere, I wasn't sitting there thinking, what's my deepest purpose in life? I was, you know, in and out, following the breath. And out of nowhere came a very deeply felt sense. My life is really about serving the Dharma, and I dedicate my life to that, whatever it means. And it's like, where did that come from? And the next moment was, who do you think you are? You little twit, you know? And it was really interesting. And those two voices clearly came from such different places, in, in a way, you know, speaking on the relative level. One of them was just the usual self-judgment, the second one. The first one felt very profound and didn't feel like Carol persona at all. It was very moving, and I could tell there was something true about it. It was also very scary, and immediately, the, well, what does that mean? How can I do that? And then I'll plan out the next 10 years. What's interesting is forget all of that. You don't have to plan out anything. But when it comes up for you, and sometimes we can just connect with our real inner purity. It's there for all of us. It will manifest in probably a slightly different way for each one of us. But when we touch that, when it arises, you know, I beg you, really honor it in yourself. Never mind all the voices that either say, you know, you have no right or you have nothing to offer or it's too scary, I might have to change my life. It's true, we might have to change our life. <laughs> but I'll say about that in a minute, that's not so bad sometimes. But we don't have to know any of that ahead of time. In fact, we can't. But to really, to really honor, amidst all the multiplicity, that depth of beauty and commitment, that manifestation of truth. And once you consciously acknowledge it to yourself, it can become a, a conscious reference point when you need to make decisions, either life-changing decisions or smaller decisions. Um, granted, I don't mean every time you're trying to decide what to have for dinner, you, you know, well, my purpose is to serve the Dharma, you know, should I have French fries or should I have baked potato? You know, I'm, I'm not talking on that level. And I made myself crazy like that for a while, so I hope spare yourselves. But in, in seemingly big decisions, when we remember our purpose, and not just, you know, something in the mind, but reconnect with it in our hearts, actually the decision becomes obvious. And it's, it's uh, very energizing. It takes out a lot of confusion. I've told this story a lot before, but it's such a good example. I will anyway. Sometime after this sense I had, my life's about serving the Dharma, what does it mean? I actually forgot about it. And I was a manager here at that time. It was uh, some time ago, 84, I think it was. And 
I wasn't, uh, I was just manager and here to practice and that was it. I wasn't thinking about anything in the future. And uh, it came about through a series of circumstances that a weekend course, a weekend meditation course needed to be taught. It was all planned and the person who was going to teach it got sick and no one could go do it. And a couple of friends of mine here, other teachers, decided I should go do it. I thought that was a really bad idea, <laughs> very, very poor idea, and uh, basically said, no, no way. And these two friends embarked on this uh, campaign of intimidation to, to make me do it. I mean, they just wouldn't stop. And, um, which was interesting because one of them was not her personality to be pushy. Um, and it just kept at me. And I was saying, no, no. And then suddenly, it, this memory came up. Oh, yeah, right. My <laughs> purpose in life is to serve the Dharma. And I don't get to choose, really, what, how that's going to manifest. It doesn't mean the way I like it. You know, that's not part of the contract, necessarily. Well, as soon as I remembered that, it became so clear that my intention in saying no was totally fear and self-preservation and avoidance of uh, humiliation. That was basically my reason to say no, and it doesn't stand up under scrutiny. Um, there was really nothing else to think about, so I said, okay, I'll do it. And it's, it was such a lesson. I mean, the fear didn't go away and, and everything. I really, the whole flight, it was in Vancouver, so the whole flight from here to Vancouver was, ugh, oh, I was horrible, I was just in terror. And um, up until the moment I started teaching, and then somehow the Dharma takes over. It's really amazing. But the lesson was that once it was clear how my action would align with my purpose, then everything else that arises from that decision, the fear and the panic and all that, is clearly part of practice. It's what I can use to grow, that I can understand the emptiness of fear, that fear doesn't mean I can't do something. It was so empowering to know that once I'm in alignment with my purpose, everything else is okay. That doesn't mean everything else is comfortable. In fact, I often ask myself now when I'm wavering about something, do I want to be comfortable or do I want to be free? And as soon as I phrased it that way, again, it's kind of, oh, okay, can't really hide from this one. It's obvious. So that's just a, a little experience, but it's a, a way that seeing when you acknowledge to yourself what's truly valuable to you in your life. And we can reconnect with that. It is a powerful force, both energizing us to do things that are of value to ourselves and others, and also just a force of transformation in how we live our lives. One teacher said once that in every moment of activity, we are committing ourselves to something. It's a question of what? Are we willing to look? So not using this though in a way to say, okay, look, every time I do something 
to again beat myself with a club because this particular activity is not serving the Dharma. Right? It's not another way to make ourselves uh, wrong or bad. But it's a way to deeply inspire us to keep the truth, our connection to truth, alive in our lives. And it's really a wonderful help in this. So, of course, we need our practice, the mindfulness of being present, to even remember to question our motivation, never mind being able to tell what it is. And we need the aspect of mindfulness that is non-judging, that is willing to honestly see why we're doing what we're doing and not to judge it. So that tuning into our deepest purpose, it has to be what's really true for us, not some idea of what we wish, you know. So for a while, I, I really some years, I used to, I think it was actually before this story I told, I had this sense I should live a very dharmic life, whatever that meant. It wasn't clearly defined. But that should is always a kind of a giveaway. If you tune into your purpose and it comes out, I should be like this, watch out. Because it often means it's an ideal that we try to live up to by kind of judging ourselves or trying to twist ourselves to fit an outer ideal. You know, so when I had this idea, I should live a dharmic life, every time I would go to a movie, or watch a TV show, or just waste time, you know, not somehow be studying, or practicing, or going out doing good, or I don't know what, you know. But it was a lot of my time, believe me. Every moment that I felt I wasted, you know, I would berate myself for so heavily. So it was as if I was walking around with this weight of guilt all the time for not being pure enough, not being dharmic enough. I mean, it's horrible. It is not a helpful way to live. This is not what I'm talking about. But I found when we really tune into our purpose in a genuine way, with compassion, with metta for ourselves, and with mindfulness, then the times when we deviate, we see it, we accept it. Because of course we're going to deviate. You may have noticed that that happens sometimes here <laughs> in your practice. I mean, even in big intentions, I'm not going to look at the bulletin board again until tea time. Clear intention, and you walk out, and the next thing you know, <laughs> I know I don't have interviews today, but let's memorize everybody. I was <laughs> like, how did I get here? clear intention, but we forget, and we deviate, you know, it's okay. I remember one retreat I was teaching in California. It's always embarrassing when you make your intentions out loud. We were sitting at the table at lunch and eating uh, pieces of watermelon off of a platter, and I said, uh, okay, this is the last piece that's really making me sick. Of course, a minute again, a minute later, I was eating another piece, and all the other staff people gleefully said, ah, ha, ha, look at you, you know, you just said it was making you sick. So much for your intentions. Uh, we're going to deviate when there's not awareness of our intention, 
we're back with habit. Often, as well, many of our decisions are incredibly complex. Even being able to tell what is our motivation for entering a particular relationship. I mean, my God, how complicated is that? Or for leaving a relationship. Or just some of the complicated things you might have to do in your job. Of course, there's a multiplicity of purposes and intentions in something like that not to mention the subconscious ones that we might not be able to tune into. So not to blame, but simply to pay attention with a, a kind of a kindness. And what I found has happened for me over the years is when I finally stopped beating myself up for not being totally pure and dharmic in every moment of existence, and said, okay, you want to watch a really stupid show on TV, go ahead, watch it with all my love. Watch this show. <laughs> and now watch it with attention. And about halfway through, I go, you know, this is really stupid. And I turn it off. It was like the interest was gone. And I found, just as you find in your practice here, that the purpose, the, the deepest purpose begins to come in more naturally that our actions and choices begin to harmonize much more naturally. So here, for example, our purpose is to be a good yogi, to be mindful, or it might be to have good sittings, you know, it might be to get back to that bliss, whatever our purpose is, let's be honest about it. And you're there for a while, and then, of course, the next day, you're just overwhelmed with thoughts and emotions, and it's gone. And I know everybody here has had this experience. And it just feels like it's all gone down the drain, whatever our story is about it. What's so interesting, and I've noticed this in talking to a lot of people just in this last week or two, is that we're really starting to get it that at first we start fighting, oh no, the thinking, the emotions, I've got to get back to how it was before, get back to the breath, get back to the breath. But we've started to learn that the forcing of motivation doesn't work. And time after time, people have said, sooner now, much more sooner, they're giving that up and saying, okay, agitation, okay, restlessness, okay, endless thinking, that's fine. And lo and behold, with much less struggle and much sooner than expected, the mind and heart comes back into balance. All of a sudden, there seems to be mindfulness, there seems to be energy, there seems to be a modicum of equanimity. And we think, where did this come from? I didn't make it happen. But it comes much more naturally, and in that, we develop a much deeper faith and trust that when we fall out of our purpose, we don't have to panic, that the times of connection with it have so deepened our understanding and the power of heart and mind that we come back into balance much more naturally and easily. And just as this happens day to day on retreat, it can happen week to week or year to year in our life. And yet, 
we do need to actively keep coming back to stay in touch with our purpose. There is so many things that come up in our life, so many possibilities pulling us in so many directions. I can't remember if I read this before, but I love this from that Japanese woman, Izumi Shikibu, just about the different pulls on our heart, on our intentions. Although I try to hold the single thought of Buddha's teaching in my heart, I cannot help but hear the many crickets' voices calling as well. Just lovely. I try to hold the single thought of Buddha's teaching, but I cannot help but hear the many crickets' voices calling as well. Because I love it because we also hear the beauty sometimes of the crickets' voices, not hating them. And we will kind of move in different directions. But when we can hold our purpose with a, a deep love and connection, a real trust and faith in the purity of the Dharma, and that we ourselves are manifestations of that purity, then again and again easily, our purpose will resurface, will reconnect with it. And we do have to sometimes actively find ways to help us reconnect. One I just want to mention, because it's been for some reason coming up in my heart a lot uh, the last few weeks, is well, we've talked a lot about Sangha. We help each other reconnect. Sometimes in the silence here, simply by seeing another person's commitment, you don't know what's going on inside them, but when we're in one of our, I've had it, I'm out of here, why am I doing this? Just seeing somebody else, it's not that we want to mimic them, but it retouches that place of faith, the place of trust in us. Finding or having the good karma to connect with, even from a distance, really wise beings, to connect with teachers or beings who are somewhat awakened. It's been uh, an incredible good fortune in my life. Um, some of the teachers that I've been with, and even if you don't know them, like I remember one time I flew across the country for a weekend to be at some huge symposium with the Dalai Lama, like 6,000 people. It's not like we were having some personal connection there, you know, but just being in the presence of beings whose life is so clearly dedicated to awakening and to the service of beings, and it doesn't have to be particularly Buddhist, but to, to let that in, at times to even search it out, can so deeply awaken, reconnect us, to that place of faith, of inspiration, you know. It doesn't mean that we have to follow that teacher, I don't mean that. But just to be with other wise people, other people committed to a path of awakening, committed to uh, a life of compassion, um, it, to me, it sort of bypasses the rational and awakens quite deeply a resonance with, with my true purpose in life. There's a Tibetan saying that if you look into the essence of devotion, 
Devotion here can mean faith in the Dharma too, not doesn't have to be personal devotion. But looking into the essence of devotion, you meet naked awareness directly. They feed each other. So in moments of just sitting with a really uh, peaceful or wise or compassionate being, it can touch that in us, reconnect us. And at different times, each one of us might be that wise or awakened or compassionate being. We don't have to be it every moment, but we can be it for each other at various times. It's such a gift for us as teachers being able to share this time with you because at times each one of you is like lighting up, you know, a little Buddha, a little awakened being, and you usually don't know it at the time. But, you know, it's kind of almost like little rays are coming out. I'm exaggerating, you know, really. But it's a sense of purity just manifest. And it touches all of us in silence or in speech, whether we know it or not. And it deeply helps us continue on this path. One of the reasons we all talk so much about our practice time in Asia is I, I feel in this light, because in Asia you have a combination. First, there, I don't know if there's more wise beings, but in a way it seems like, at least up until recently, um, Asia has sort of, it's more supportive of a really spiritually uh, dedicated life. So being in Thailand or being in Burma, the sense of the incredible uh, faith of the people in the Dharma itself, and that faith manifesting as such generosity to support anyone who is so committed to Dharma that they will dedicate, not of their lives as a monk or nun, it's just people who might come to sit in a monastery for five days would be supported. There's such a faith, and it's so, I want to say pure, of course it's not always so pure, you know, it's contaminated with all the calaces just like we are. But it's so alive. And you get the sense of, yes, this is really true. It is possible to live like this and to come in contact with uh, teachers and nuns and monks and kind of renunciates who have dedicated their life to awakening in a very conscious way. It's so inspirational combined with a sort of simplicity of life in Asia that I find simplicity in my life makes it much easier to even remember <laughs> that I would like to connect with what my deepest purpose is. It's easier to remember when I'm not running around, you know, trying to do 10 different things in 10 different places in one day, you know, on the highway every 15 minutes. It's easier to remember. But it doesn't have to be Asia, you know. I just want to bring that out. A lot of times, I remember myself in the first three-month retreats I did here. Well, actually, my first practice was in Asia, so I guess I already had that hit of, oh, Asia is so wonderful to practice. But a lot of times people think, well, if I really want to do it, I have to go to Asia. That's baloney, you know. The truth is everywhere. There are wise beings, committed beings everywhere. 
all sitting here in this room. It's not about where. It's about finding our purpose and finding the ways to keep connecting to it. One of the people that I remember, I really hold in my heart as someone who inspired me deeply, but I didn't realize it at the time, is my piano teacher from when I was in um, junior high school. Because she was a, a woman about my grandmother's age who was a Christian scientist, which I didn't know anything about. And I'm sure I still don't really understand it. But what I got from her was that she really deeply in her life was trying to live truth. And to her, the truth was really, really manifested as love. The phrase, God is love, is really what she based her life on. And she truly lived that way. I mean, I'm a struggling person who was dedicated to living a life of love. And it was, it was a revelation to me that that was possible, that people lived so sincerely, and um, it wasn't some kind of hokey idea, but that someone could dedicate their life to living that way and just be a normal person. Uh, so I, actually, I still know her. She's, she's 92 now. <laughs> she lives in Maine. And, uh, you know, she's going through hardship and like everyone. But just that, that depth of commitment deeply inspired me. And I think we can find that really all around us when we look. So looking to awakened people isn't about restricting ourselves to some sense of elitism. It's more about opening up to seeing the beauty and the truth everywhere in life. And yes, it's true that as we tune into our deepest aspiration, and begin to use that as a beacon, a guideline in making choices, there might be changes that come in our life. And when we think of it from now, oh my goodness, will I have to give up this or that? How will I be able to keep doing whatever it is I'm doing? It can be scary or overwhelming or, oh no, you know, I, I hate the thought of this. I don't want to live like a nun in Thailand, you know, get over it. But it isn't like that. You know, I've found for myself that when I've ever made a decision out of really tuning into my commitment to serve the Dharma, and it's not too egocentric, um, the decision at the time might feel like giving up. Often, when I look at how I've live my life now on one level, it's amazing. I feel incredibly blessed in the life that I have. I could never have imagined this. On the other hand, when I look at, it's also meant that I'm on the road most of the year. I have very little feeling of a settled home life. I've not had children and I'm clearly not going to have children or any kind of uh, a family life in the normal sense. And at times I could look at it and see, well, that's really a huge renunciation, you know, something I really gave up. But it happens so gradually that there's no sense of renunciation at all. It's really that things that kind of distract us from what's truly important just sort of fall away. 
And I mean, this looks different for everyone. I'm not upholding the way my life has been as the way it should be. I'm just, I only have me to use for an example. But it, it doesn't feel so much like renunciation as like an opening to such a greater possibility to, to from time to time be able to connect with truth and inspiration. A friend of mine told me, a, this is a paraphrase of an Indian woman saint, Anandamayama, who, I don't have the exact words, but she was a, a great saint in India of the century. And a couple of people were coming to her and really lauding her for being such a great renunciate, for having given up the world and for living uh, so simply. And she just started laughing and laughing and laughing. And they said, what's so funny? And she said, you're the ones who are the renunciates in living the life that you're living because you're giving up the great joy of living in God's presence. You're the renunciates. And it's, it's really true. In whatever words, in whatever way, we contact that in our life. And so to not to have some harsh ideal of how one should live, we can contact the presence of truth living life in any form. You know, there's a poem by Rumi, the last two lines I love. Let the beauty you love be what you do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. Whatever we do in our life, when it can come from this connection to what is truly valuable, what is our true purpose? Having children, washing the dishes, raking the lawn, cleaning the sewer. It doesn't matter what we're doing when we're doing it with an attitude of how can I awaken in this moment? How can this activity be in the service of awakening and of compassion for all beings, as Geshe Rapton said? And to me, this is what this clear comprehension of purpose, of deeper aspiration, brings into our life. This overarching sense of the truth begins to shine through all aspects of life. And this brings in the, the second two, the last two parts of the clear comprehension begin to develop naturally when we meet it with this clear sense of purpose. And they're really the aspects of making our life our practice, that's what I just said, and recognizing truth or reality or non-delusion everywhere so that the insights we have aren't just some isolated, ah, anicca, yes, everything comes and goes. You know, I can precisely notice the ending of sensation and the beginning of the breath, you know, on the cushion. But it translates into our life. And we begin, obviously, to see it everywhere when we have this sense of overarching purpose because the truth begins to shine out everywhere not just in Asia, not just in spiritual situations, not just when we're on retreat. Because we begin to look with the eyes or listen with the ears of truth. 
And the truth shines everywhere. It can't be hidden. And, and all of life, even the most difficult circumstances, maybe in a way, especially the most difficult circumstances, I find become the avenues for awakening. And sometimes on, a, on leaving a retreat, or even in a retreat, we find that we're so much more attuned to the suffering aspect of life, the impermanent aspect, and sometimes it can feel a little overwhelming. I know once at the end of a three-month retreat, for some reason, I don't know why, I decided to go to the mall in Worcester and walk around. (laughs) I don't know if it was good or bad. It was a suffering experience, for sure. I just felt like, oh, the suffering on everybody's face. And, but that suffering doesn't have to be a bad thing because I found really it's the, it's the avenue in to connection with all beings, the avenue into compassion, that when we close down, you know, hating the pain, we're separate. But when we can look through the eyes of truth, to see that, yes, this suffering being, this suffering experience, mine or another, when we open to it, it's actually an avenue in. It's a connection to all other beings, an avenue into our uh, interconnectedness, our non-separation. And it can happen spontaneously, like this man was saying. It can also happen through reflection, bringing in this non-delusion. Once I was in the hospital and lying there in a lot of pain, and it's easy to start to feel rather self-centered and caught up in one's own story. And I noticed this happening. And I kind of consciously began to expand, to reflect. I was in a room with three other women, old women, all suffering, actually a lot more than I was. And I just started, well, gosh, just in this room, the four of us, And how many people, how many rooms just in this hospital? And how many hospitals just in this little area of a few towns? There's five or six. Just in this little area. And I just kept expanding out into really an infinite number of people in pain in hospitals at that moment or at this moment. And it started as a somewhat intellectual exercise. But before long, it was really, my whole sense of self-concern and isolation had vanished. And I felt a really loving connection with all beings. Sometimes it's all beings of pain. Sometimes it's all beings of joy. But that whatever the situation, it can consciously be an avenue in to interconnectedness. And the truth shines everywhere no matter what we're doing, we can really use this. Uh, One other little story, just that no matter what we're doing, in this moment we can awaken. In the, there's a book of poems of the nuns, women who were nuns at the time of the Buddha. And the little stories of the women's life and what led to the poem. And there's one woman that they don't have her name. She's called an anonymous wife. A wife of a Brahmin. 
uh, in Vesali, where the Buddha spoke a lot. And she was quite devoted to the Buddha, wanted to become a nun, but her husband would not allow her to. And you had to have your husband's permission. And theoretically, husbands had to have their wives' permission too, just so you know it was sort of fair. But her husband didn't give her permission. So she kept up her duties, her obligations as a Brahmin wife, but continuing to be sincerely devoted to truth. And it was said that one day while she was cooking the curry in the kitchen, it, the vegetables caught fire. And with a real loud crackling fire, the whole meal just burned up. And in that moment of watching the whole meal go up in flames, she had such a deep insight into impermanence <laughs> that she became free, a third stage enlightenment. Third stage, mind you, not just the first stage. So you could even be burning your food, <laughs> and that could be your avenue for awakening. It really isn't the activity. It's the attitude we bring. Nothing is too mundane. So in tuning into this broader aspect, clear comprehension, a sense of your deepest purpose, I'd really encourage you to not be intimidated, to connect with what that is for yourself, and don't undervalue don't underestimate the strength of your commitment. I know you know all the moments you haven't been wanting to be mindful and that you've wished you never set foot on this path. I, I realize we have those moments, but I hate to tell you, it's too late. <laughs> we can't turn back now. It's like we can't go back to ignorance. And it wouldn't be so good if you could, really. It wouldn't be so good. But don't underestimate yourself. I just want to, this is from Dingo Kensi Rinpoche. Ask yourself how many of the billions of inhabitants of this planet have any idea of how rare it is to have been born as a human being? How many of those who understand the rarity of human birth ever think of using that chance to practice the Dharma? How many of those who think of practice actually do? How many of those who start continue? How many of those who continue attain ultimate realization? I just want to stop here and say all of you are continuing. All of us are continuing. So don't be saying, yeah, I'm back there in the beginning who doesn't appreciate. Appreciate the depth of your commitment. Who would have thought your first weekend retreat or the first sitting group you went to, you'd end up at a three-month course. That depth of commitment just creeps up on us. But it's here now for each of us. As long as you fail to recognize the true value of human existence, you will fritter your life away in futile activity and distraction. When life comes all too soon to its inevitable end, you will not have achieved anything worthwhile at all. But once you really see the unique opportunity that our human life can bring, you will definitely direct your energy into its true worth 
by putting the Dharma into practice. I just want to express my sincere gratitude and appreciation to all of you for being some of the rare beings who are putting the Dharma into practice, who are realizing in your action, in your speech, in your thoughts, in your intentions, the real value of the truth and of a human life and are being part of the rare inhabitants of this planet who let the truth really shine through and and light up the planet for the rest of the world. It's been a real um, honor for me to be able to share this time with each of you. And there's nobody here that isn't exhibiting that quality of deep purpose and commitment, whether your little mind wants to let you believe it or not. It's really true. So thank you all from the bottom of my heart. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.